the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy third week of Advent. So good to have you. Just so you know, we also have a nine o'clock service <laughs> if we need to free up some space in here. It's good to have a full room. Thanks for being here this morning. When I was in fourth grade, my teacher told me to go to the principal's office. Some of you may have heard this story before. And uh, I, I had to make that long walk from the classroom to the principal's office, and I, I can see it in my mind. It was that vivid. It was a dreadful walk. And what made it even worse was knowing I would have to explain to my parents that I was sent to the principal's office. And so I, I, I burst into tears, and I was crying all the way to the principal's office. As I got closer to the principal's office, I lifted my eyes, and I saw my mom standing right next to the office and was immediately confused, and she was confused. She looked at me and said, why are you crying? And I said, because... My teacher sent me to the principal's office, and she said, because I'm here to pick you up to take you to the dentist. And I immediately realized I had no idea what was going on. I totally mixed everything up. And in general, a lot of people that I talk to about their relationship with God, their relationship with the church, and even a lot of folks, as they walk through Advent, I think we lose sight of the big picture of like where all this is headed. And we kind of walk with this dread through Lent and Advent, these preparation seasons, thinking like, well, got to go to the principal's office. God has got, he's sick of me. I, I screwed up again. Here we go. And people walk through these seasons with that kind of heaviness and with that kind of confusion, actually. But that's actually not the case for Advent, nor is it for Lent, these purple seasons of preparations. There's something in view that is not despair. For the Christian. And so in Advent we hear these kind of clanging themes of rejoice in this week, but even judgments throughout all of the four weeks of Advent. Rejoice is why we light this rose or pink colored candle, this kind of disruption of the colors. And it's actually for us this way of catching the plot line again. Where is this headed? What's this really all about? What is God up to in this world? The third week of Advent gives us kind of a glimpse. It refreshes our vision for where God is taking things. And yet, at the same time, even though, and by the way, we could do like pink vestments as part of the tradition, which I think we would look good in pink. We should try that sometime. Uh, But even with that pink rejoice season, you still have John the Baptist saying, Hey, you brood of vipers, who warned you about the coming judgment? So again, you have that rejoice, but then you have this strong word of judgment. How do we make sense of this in Advent? What, how do these fit together? Should we be um, uh, scared of the judgment that's coming or filled with the joy that is coming? How do those fit? That's what we're going to look at together this morning. First, I want to jump into Zephaniah. It was the first reading that we heard this morning. Zephaniah's good news to rejoice. Was that message for everyone? Did you pay attention to this? Who was Zephaniah telling to rejoice? Everybody? I don't think so. For instance, it's, it isn't for Israel's enemies or the wicked, this good news of rejoice. Part of Zephaniah's promise, the message that he had from God, is that God would deal with their oppressors. The rejoice wasn't for their oppressors. It's not for the dominating powers that have put Israel in exile and in ruin. That's not who the message of rejoice seems to be for in Zephaniah. Uh, Verse um, 18 says that this good news 
is for a different group of people, for Israel themselves, those who mourn the festivals of the Lord, those who have oppressors, their messages rejoice. The lame are mentioned, the outcasts, the outsiders, and the shamed. This is who Zephaniah is speaking to about rejoice. Interesting. In Psalm 85, that you so beautifully chanted this morning, we hear a plea, a prayer, for God to make things right in our lives and in this world. To restore the salvation of his people. And in verse 8, it asks God to speak shalom, peace. This really robust profound it's not just sort of a an absence of conflict or just comfort this is a whole world made right under God's care that's what shalom is getting at here so the psalmist asked God to speak shalom and to remove his anger and judgment from his people so that they may rejoice once again in verse 6 And when God makes things right, we see in verse 10 of Psalm 85, the psalmist says it's like righteousness and peace kiss one another. These two things that we might think are like opposites or kind of disparate from one another, we find that when God is present in his arriving and saving presence, they come together and kiss in the most intimate way. They are part of one another. It's cute, isn't it? It's wonderful. But I think there's actually, it's actually a little bit more beautiful in Spanish. Um, I've been uh, studying the scriptures with my English and my Spanish Bible uh, right beside each other. Um, and by the way, we should chant a psalm in Spanish one of these days. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, we should. Liz, you'd be all about that. I might struggle, but that's, that would sound awesome. Anyways, in this passage about, uh, about righteousness and peace kissing one another, this is how it's translated in the Spanish Bible. La justicia y la paz se besaron. The justice and the peace, they kiss one another. Huh. But I thought it was righteousness and peace. This Hebrew word behind both of these words, tzedek, is translated righteousness most of the time in English and in Spanish is translated la justicia, or justice in Spanish. And it goes, there's a lot going on there, right? And I'm not sure I know exactly everything that's going on there, but I do know that there's something behind these words that's just, it's actually like a full picture of a world made right under the care of God that doesn't just look like piety or we might think holiness when we hear righteousness but a making things right in oneself and with one's neighbor it should remind us of the greatest commandment to love god and our neighbor as ourselves right that wholeness we might describe as shalom this is this this is what i think this word is getting at righteousness and la justicia a world made right with god and neighbor this is where things are heading in advent can you see this This is so important. You can't walk through Advent without seeing this. It makes all the difference. Can you see it? God's arrival, his saving presence, means goodness and mercy and shalom and peace, righteousness, justice, justice, justice. It's mentioned three times in Psalm 85. God's arrival in Psalm 85 is not some sort of private, individual matter. It's not some sort of like merely personal reality that's, that we're awaiting in Christmas. But it is this public, vast, 
comprehensive thing that God is doing in the world. There's not an inch of the world that won't be dealt with in God's arrival. All of it will be made right in his presence. Gustavo Gutierrez, a theologian, writes this about Psalm 85, in particular these, these words. These are not private realities. They are not only internal attitudes. They are social realities, implying a historical liberation by God's coming kingdom. Praise the Lord. That sounds like really good news, right? So then you can see why with news like that, one might rejoice. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I could get down with that. I could rejoice over that. But you can also see why when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he insults this crowd calling them a brood of vipers, he's aiming it not at those who would await this future and rejoice, but he's aiming it at those who have stood in uh, to obstruct God's future. Who think that this news, it just kind of goes past them, doesn't really concern them. I'm good, I'm comfortable, not much needs to change here. And then they catch wind of this prophet preaching and doing these things and baptizing for forgiveness. And then all of a sudden these people show up as if to kind of escape being held accountable for the ways that they have not done right in God's eyes. All of a sudden there's a change in tune. John says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? Who warned you? I've always loved this. Uh, this is a pretty sick burn in the New Testament. I've always loved this. But did you know that this is likely a reference to an image that we find in Isaiah 59, 5, where, where the prophet Isaiah, he likens the wicked and the evil to spiders and vipers. And so very likely what John is doing is kind of this ancient inside joke. Like, you remember that? Yeah, that's you. You wicked. You vipers. So the insult gets even deeper with that, I think. And now John is calling them to account to their face and they say to John well what should we do then that's how you know that's how you know when that message is really cut through our defenses when we say okay now what what should we do the crowd the tax collectors the soldiers they all came and asked John this question and what's interesting is that John had a different response for each one of them it wasn't just about feel a guilt inside. Feel a spiritual weight and regret. Feel shame. This isn't what John was concerned with, though I'm sure some of that was involved, right? What John was compelled to tell them was to take action, to make things right with one another. If you're serious about being made right with God, then you've you got to be serious about making things right with your neighbor, for sure. To the crowd, he told them, for instance, to share their belongings. To the tax collector, don't exploit people for more money than you should. To the soldier, don't threaten people with violence just to get some money out of them. See, for each one of these situations, repentance took discernment in their place with their life as they had it and saying, God, if you indeed are making things right in this world and in my life, then what does it look like for me to make things right with those around me, with my life as I have them. There's nothing wrong with being a crowd. There's nothing wrong with being a tax collector. There's nothing wrong with being a soldier. What John was compelling them to do was think, discern. If indeed the Christ is moving into your life and setting up shop, pitching his tent, right? 
then discern what it looks like in your situation to make things right, right where you are with those around you. That might even prompt some of us now to think about those closely connected to us that we might need to make things right with. Advent provokes us to think about this in such a good way. John knew that preparing for God's arrival meant this deeper work of discernment. That's what Advent's actually about. To ask, God, I I want to prepare for your coming, and I want to be made right with you, and only you can do that, Lord. But as you do that, that looks like flowing through me, me making it right with others. That's our posture. That's what we're being invited into. This is what it looks like to actually anticipate, as if you thought it was true, the arrival of a God who makes the world right, who brings about justice, shalom, that deep sense of peace. So for the poor, for the exploited, for the extorted, those taken advantage of, the marginalized, the abused, the hurt, the burdened, God's arrival sounds like good news, doesn't it? If he's making the world right. And rejoice makes a lot of sense. You don't have to tell those people to rejoice at God's arrival. They know what this means. And you can't get them to shut up. It's so awesome. Of course rejoice makes sense. But for the wicked, those who won't budge, who won't lift a finger to help their neighbor. This means that they will have to reckon with the one who comes. The one who comes that John warns. He's not even worthy to touch or untie his sandals. He comes to the floor, not all cute and sweet like we like to think of baby Jesus, but he comes, he comes to do some work. Did you hear the thing about the threshing floor and throwing things into fire? Like Jesus is coming to set things right. And if we're in the way, if we're obstructing his goodness, if we refuse to budge, that he, about his, king, his kingdom arriving, he will um, go right through us. He will deal with us, and the powerful will reckon with him. Yikes. You can hear those themes of judgment and joy, right? It, it kind of depends. Well, where are you standing? Are you going to make space, make room for the coming king? And John, uh, we can see, some will repent, some will be baptized by John. You can see their posture. Others will throw John in prison and cut his head off. Actions, not talk, will be the thing that actually shows us the difference between rejoice and judgments. The humble will rejoice. The proud and the wicked, they will be judged. That's a lot, to, I know, it's a lot to take in at the coming of Jesus. So where are you in this story? How do you hear this news? Where are you on the receiving end of the prophets, the psalmists, John the Baptist, this message? Is Advent and Father Sean, are they just trying to scare us to be better people or something? Do we just like light a pink candle and rejoice and then go out the church doors and move on with our life? Try to pretend we didn't hear anything? Should we be happy or should we brace for impact? Like, what is the thing going on in Advent here? I think that what we hear in the readings, what John's getting at in his message, to each person, some advice that reveals that repentance bears fruit. And we don't repent unto despair. 
we repent unto joy. We turn from our wicked ways. We turn from our, like, self-centered kind of ways. We turn from all of the ways that we are so accustomed to that we know needs to change. We turn from that. We leave it behind and we repent, saying no more in order to make way for the king. We don't repent with this sort of, like, uh, lost and abandoned despair. We don't repent with this mood or this thought of God who's just sick of us and wants us to just like admit that we're wrong finally. No, 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 no. In Advent, we prepare and repent because we know that a loving God comes to make his home with us and to set the world right. So we repent unto joy. Does that make sense? From purple to pink, through preparation and repentance to joy. This is, I think, actually how I would summarize everything that Paul said in his as uh, reading from Philippians chapter 4. Through purple, pink, church. Or maybe another way to say it, I was practicing a few of these things to summarize what I think Paul was getting at. Here's another one, like, church, pink looks so good on you. Goodness, rejoice, be happy. And not just like the world's happiness, but meditate on the way that God is bringing about a new world through his son Jesus. And oh my goodness, doesn't that drive you to happiness and joy? Rejoice constantly. Let it spill over in you. Instead of worrying, instead of turning to sin in our own ways, instead pray and discern about what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is righteous, what is kind, what is loving. His whole list. Think about these things because this is where God is taking it. This is where the future is heading. Turn to them then. And repent, knowing that the kingdom of God is actually at hand. That is the joy that we have, friends. So we find ourselves in this place, even this morning, where we now have to discern. It's not just like kind of, does it just happen to us? You kind of have to be present here and listen up. Listen, like pay attention to where your life is. Like John, you come to John. What do we do, John? He says, well, where do you find yourself? What discernment do you have to do in your own life to displace worry and sin from the center of your life? To displace that and replace it with the joy that we have in our coming Christ. What does it look like for you? To displace all the things in the center of your life with the joy that we have in the coming Christ and his kingdom. What would that look like for you? What must we do? That's the work we should do. It may mean repentance. I'm sure it means repentance. It may mean a change of ways, an amendment of life. I'm sure it does. It may even mean for some of us practicing a joy when we're not feeling it. And that's okay too. Where in your life can we make that trade? Through repentance to joy. Church, pink does look good on you. It would look so good on you. It does look good on you. Your joy spilling over in your lives and into this neighborhood, that's what the world needs. Is a church in pink. That radiant joy of the church in the world. And we have good reason for it, beloved. We have good reason for it. Our king is on his way. He comes to make things right. He comes to bring healing and wholeness and shalom and righteousness. God comes to make our broken world right. And so we say amen. And we rejoice 
again and again and again. And we won't shut up about it because there's just too much to be joyful about. And when we do rejoice, it's not just sentimental. When we do rejoice, we're putting our lives in the hands of the king who is coming to set things right. We're deciding this is what my life will be oriented around the truth of where God is taking this future. And when we entrust ourselves to God in this way, he who makes everything work together in perfect shalom through his son will be faithful to complete that work in us. We can trust him even now with our lives because he is coming to make a home in us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Can we take a moment of silence and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us? Ask the Holy Spirit this morning, so what then should I do? Amen. Let's take a moment. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.